0: This time around, I spoke to mathematician, TV star, author, and all-round legend, Hannah Fry. Now, just before we dive into what I think is a cracker of an episode, we have a brand new sponsor. And I think you're going to like this one. Cue the fancy music. This episode of the Mr Barton Maths Podcast is brought to you by Audible. Yes, I'm moving up in the world. Now, I genuinely flipping love Audible. I listen to audiobooks all the time. Just like podcasts, they are absolutely superb to have on whilst you do something else. Whether that's walking, washing up or just let on the settee with your eyes closed after a flipping hard day at work. Indeed, they were an absolute godsend to me yesterday when I was stuck on the M5 and the M6 for six hours trying to get home from Bristol. Now, for listeners of the Mr Barton Maths podcast, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30 day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. And I'll tell you what the best part is. If you choose to cancel during those 30 days, you still get to keep your audiobook forever and ever. Now, with over 180,000 audiobooks to choose from, you will be spoilt for choice. But I have one in particular that I would like to recommend today. That's Hello World by today's podcast guest, Hannah Fry. It genuinely is an amazing book about the role algorithms and mathematics as a whole play in our lives and how that role might change in the future. And who's the narrator of this fine book, I hear you ask? Well, it's only Hannah herself, and she has a tremendous voice. So, to grab your free copy of Hello World, or any of the other 180,000 audiobooks, just head over to audibletrial.com forward slash Mr. Barton. That's audibletrial.com forward slash Mr. Barton. And I'll put that link in the show notes audible hey hopefully apple or caribbean cruises will get in contact for next episode But in the meantime, if you're interested in spreading the word about your product, service or event to thousands of some of the most intelligent, engaged, connected podcast listeners in the world, then I am offering the opportunity to sponsor episodes of the Mr. Barton Maths podcast. Just drop me an email at mrbartonmaths at gmail.com to find out about the packages available. But now back to today's episode. Dr. Hannah Fry is an Associate Professor in the Mathematics of Cities at the Centre for Advanced Spatial Analysis at UCL. Flipping out, that's not a bad title. She works alongside a unique mix of physicists, mathematicians, computer scientists, architects and geographers to study the patterns in human behaviour, particularly in an urban setting. And Hannah is also a TV star, appearing in programmes such as How to Find Love Online, The Joy of Winning and the current outstanding BBC4 series Magic Numbers. All of which help to show the beauty, fun and importance of mathematics to a wide audience. And Hannah's also an author, penning books such as The Mathematics of Love and her most recent work Hello World. So, in a wide-ranging conversation, Hannah and I discussed the following things and plenty more besides. What does a mathematician do on a day-to-day basis? Is it really just as important to communicate in maths as it is to get things right? Do boys and girls view maths differently? Has Hannah encountered any barriers in her career from being a woman? How can maths help us have better relationships? How can it help us be better parents? How can it help us solve crimes? And will driverless cars really work as well as people hope? Finally, Hannah reflects on what she wished she'd known when she first started out that she knows now, and then shares an excellent big three. Now, I absolutely loved this conversation. I'll be honest with you, I was a bit worried that Hannah might be sick to death of talking about her book and her work in general by now, having done tons of media over the last few months. But the way she was in this interview made it seem like all of that was just to help her prepare for her appearance on the Mr Barton Maths podcast. I'm going to assume that that's exactly the reason. A quick plug before we crack on. Obviously, if you buy one book as a result of this episode, then make it Hello World, either in book form on Kindle or free on Audible using audibletrial.com forward slash Mr. Good plugging, and they're audible. But if you have space on your bookshelf or Kindle for one more book, and you're interested in reading about 12 years of maths teaching mistakes, then maybe take a chance on my book, How I Wish I'd Taught Maths, available from all good and all evil bookstores. And if you have read the book and you have time to give it a quick review, that will be ideal, so long as it's a good one, of course. Anyway, I shall deprive you no longer as I introduce Hannah Fry. Enjoy this one. I know you will. And as ever, I will see you on the other side. Okay, Hannah, so we start, as we always do on the podcast, with your maths speed dating questions. So question number one, what is your favourite number and why?
1: Well, I'm going to cheat slightly. I'm going to, I'm going to pick I as my favorite number. Um, and the reason why is, uh, it's the, it's the thing that I snuck into the, to the latest, um, the latest TV show. I really love the idea that there was this problem that no one had an answer to. Um, i.e., what happens when you take the square root of a negative number? And, you know, mathematicians were just like, well, we've got to make something up. Um, and so essentially, just created this whole new number to plug this gap, you know, the, the so-called imaginary number. And, and actually, in the end, it turns out that this this number is unbelievably useful. You know, any time that you have anything to do with with waves or signals, it comes in and it really it really holds its own. And I love the idea that you can you can just invent something to to solve a problem you don't know how to solve that ends up having an incredible value.
0: Nice. Uh, can you remember when you first encountered i
1: i think i was probably at school it's in a levels isn't it uh, yeah it further levels?
0: maths yeah it pops up there, yeah definitely. i think it,
1: yeah, i think it was then i think it was around about then but i but i just remember being like well, well you can't just make something up what do you mean you can't just make something up um but yeah turns out you can <laughs> <laughs> Superb. super uh, question number two what was your favorite topic in maths as a student, Hannah? It was and always will remain calculus. Um, I just, I mean, this is, this is again, you know, the the sort of the stuff that you really get into in further maths and then when you go into university. But, I mean, it's just so delicious, right? So delicious. Just the way that everything works. It's just, I could, I spend a lifetime just doing calculus. I mean, I sort of have.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Super. And final speed dating question, Hannah. Uh, What would you like to do if you weren't a Mathematician.
1: I think I'd be an engineer, actually. Um, that was sort of, uh, in a way, what I actually always wanted to do was to be an engineer. But I didn't really know that that was an option, if that makes any sense. I went to an all-girls school and they just they were, nobody spoke about engineering. It's like a, something that was possibly on the table. Um, so I guess, in a way, maybe I'm quite glad that that didn't happen, because otherwise I'd just be working, you know, in some office somewhere rather than get to see all the fun things that, that i am doing but yeah i've always really loved it's, for me it's always about the very applied side of things it's always about it's always about using um using your mathematics almost as like a weapon to tackle the real world and just bend it to your will so and i think that engineering is a really great example of that
0: now there's a danger we're going to fall out here early doors here hannah because you <laughs> seem to be leaning towards mechanics as as your kind of Favorite preferred apply you, no, you love stats serious. though, don't you? Yeah.
1: Of course, I of course I love stats. Of course I love stats. I love all of it. Great. I love all of it. <laughs> apart from, uh, apart from maybe linear algebra. Fine, fine. All right. <laughs> well, we're
0: back on track. Super. Um, I wonder if you could just give the listeners a bit of an overview of, of your career. Where did it all start for you, Hannah? And how have you got to where you are today? So
1: it's quite straightforward, really. I have a very boring story, <laughs> which which is that. Well, OK, I'll, I'll tell you what. I'll, I'll spice it up a little bit. I'll <laughs> sure, make it sound sure. more exciting than it actually is. Um, I really, really, really wanted to work in Formula One, right? That was the only thing that I wanted to do. I was completely single-minded in this in this thing. Um, and I knew that I was really good at maths and really loved doing maths. So I, um, I went off to university to do maths of theoretical physics. Um, and, you know, with the ambition that eventually I would somehow get a job in Formula One, right? That was that was the big plan. <laughs> nice. So I did my math degree, loved it, did a math master's, loved it. Did a math PhD in, in fluid dynamics or aerodynamics, kind of the, the crossovers very um, they're very similar subjects. Uh loved it. And then uh managed to get a job in Formula One, right? It was so exciting, got a job in Formula One. Absolutely hated it. <laughs> I lasted about two months before I was like, I can't do that. Scurried off back to back to doing mathematics at university. And oh, what was it? Um, was it? Was it just boring or just completely different to what you imagined? I think, I think, to be honest, I think I missed it. I missed the window by about 15 years, I think. <laughs> because I think, you know, about 15 years, I, I sort of imagined that it would be loads of really clever people sitting around, you know, cuddling around a chalkboard yeah. with equations on it coming up with really clever ideas of ways to sort of fix things and, you know, bend it to your will. Um, But essentially now... All, everything's been already written into these these really sophisticated computer programs. Um, so had you been around, had, had I been around at the moment when those programs are being written, then I think that would have been really fun. But um, but as it is at the moment, or, or certainly, you know, in, in my experience of it, you're just sort of sitting on a computer and setting up loads of runs on your computer <laughs> and then picking a picture that's got the least amount of blue in it. I mean, it's not particularly... <laughs> <laughs> no, you've not not <laughs> sold not sold me on that one jeez so, so no, what happened after no. you
0: left formula one what happened
1: so um my phd supervisor a guy called um professor frank smith um he uh had a he just got on this new grant that was looking at human behavior using maths to look at human behavior and um he very kindly let me know about it, knew that I wasn't loving Formula One stuff. So um yeah, got me a post doing that. And that's really what I've been doing ever since
0: nice fantastic super well we're gonna we're gonna dig into um some of the things you've been up to my, uh... my dog's
1: barking oh, oh, no, that's, good.
0: No, that's good good bring him on if he wants to get involved no...
1: I think my, my baby's gonna start crying bad it's, it's all going
0: on <laughs> well this this podcast has been known to send newborn babies to sleep hannah so feel free to <laughs> <laughs> it might just calm them down a bit um I want to talk about your uh, favorite failure this is something I always ask guests now I, I mainly interview teachers on this show but um I, and teachers often talk about Lessons that didn't go to plan and something they learned from it. But I wondered, do you have any aspect um, from maybe your work life or, or however you want to interpret it? of something that didn't go to plan, but you but you learned a valuable lesson from it.
1: Oh, gosh, yes, hundreds, hundreds, hundreds <laughs> <laughs> You always learn more from your failures, I think, than from your successes. Yes. Yeah, that's the only time when you get to sort of sit back and say, okay, well, what could I have done differently? Um, but I think one particularly uh, notable one for me was that after I... That, that postdoc that I did, um, one of the very first things that... One of the very first projects that I worked on was a collaboration with the Metropolitan Police uh-huh. where we were looking um, at how... People were rioting during 2011, I don't know if you remember the yes, big yes. riots that we had. Um, so we had. All of the data for where people were and where they came from and and how they sort of moved around. Um, we were t- particularly focused on London, so how they sort of moved around the city. And the idea was that we were coming up with this, this mathematical description of how people behaved um, that could, in theory, if this all happened again, be used by the police to sort of t- t- to quash things before they really got out of control. So we published this paper and it was all fine and, you know, um, you know, quite well received by the community and so on. And about a year later, after we published it, I went off to go and give a talk in Berlin about this paper. And I was so naive and just, I think, generally at this whole time, you know, my this stage of my career, working with using maths to look at human behavior. I was just completely naive. I Went on stage, it's a very big talk in Berlin, so maybe you know, like a thousand people in the audience or so. And I was just being really flippant with the work, I was sort of making all <laughs> the silly jokes, um, you know, just being sort of like jolly about this, this work that we'd done. Anyway, it just hadn't occurred to me, it just had not occurred to me at all that if there is one place in the world where people really understand what it means to live in a police state, yes, live in a at least have information on you and they use it against you, um, it's in Berlin, right? You know, they've, they've had this long history. It's happened to, to twice in recent memory. And the audience there, they absolutely tore me apart. Are you
0: joking?
1: <laughs> it was like, I, I was, there was just this moment where I was still on stage and was like, how the hell am I going to get out of <laughs> It But I think that what that really taught me, though, it, it taught me this really valuable lesson, I think, that um that I have uh you know really sort of felt it's kind of taking it taking it on completely ever since that moment which is that when you are working with um you know when you're using your maths to look at humans you can't just think of it as these equations that are on a page anymore you can't just think of your data points as you know some random numbers these are these are people right and it's and you have to sort of respect that and you have to think about not just the implications of your code that you're running inside your machine but but the future of how that might be used and the sort of the the ethical implications of all of that. And I think that was a really important lesson for me. Because no, it's not I... something you have to think about normally when you're a mathematician, is it? You know, it's not you're not you don't have to think of the sort of ethics of of I don't know <laughs> quadratic <Yeah>. equations. <laughs> you know what I mean?
0: that's that's super Hannah. i'm just kind of cringing inside for you as well i've I've died on stage <laughs> many a time so yeah that's super Hannah. i love that um i, I want to talk now about uh, just just generally being a mathematician because I, I think you're the kind of first proper full-on mathematician that we've, that we've we've had on the show who and, and i know teachers are mathematicians but whose full-time full-time yeah. job is as is, is as a mathematician so my first question it might be a dead stupid one but what what actually does a mathematician do on a day-to-day basis hannah
1: it's definitely not a stupid one um the, the <laughs> i think being frustrated is a is a common feature <laughs> <laughs> of a man to say wake up feel frustrated <laughs> work all day um but uh, uh yeah the um i think it, it it really it's it's about just totally totally embedding yourself in a single idea and just try working at it and trying different different routes to 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 just get to know it um and then just playing with it and playing with it and playing with it until you know you go slightly mad (laughs) (laughs) you you get up in the morning (laughs) you, you you get up in the morning you 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 know, you, you have some breakfast, have some coffee. No, actually, mathematicians are normally quite late risers, actually. There's no, there's normally no one in the maths department until about t- 2 p.m. <laughs> um, so you get up in the afternoon, <laughs> um, you know, you, you sit at your desk, you, you get out your equations and your code from yesterday, and then you just try everything that you can think of and do the same the next day and is it is it is it like a solitary
0: profession hannah or is it collaborative or are you kind of wrestling with this stuff on your own and then sharing it with people to try and get a bit of inspiration when you're stuck
1: yeah i think the best the best situations are when you have someone who uh when you're working on a similar project with someone else where you each have your own little area but there are other people who who are working on on, on that Together, because then you can, um, you know, go off and do your own little bit, but then come back and have conversations about it. And often it's in those conversations where things really solidify themselves. I, I find. And uh, yeah,
0: what, what what's it? Like this again, another daft one here. But what makes a good day for a mathematician? What what has to happen for like when you get in at night and you go into bed and you think, yeah, that was a good day. That what what, what is a good day as a mathematician?
1: Well, I mean, I think it's you just want to be a little bit further on than you were before, yeah. and that can that can sometimes mean going backwards. You know, sometimes that can mean realizing that a path that you've tried doesn't work and closing it off, and then going off, and and, and deciding to start on a new path. But I mean, sometimes progress can be incredibly slow. So, you know, there was this, this, (laughs) when I say that frustration is a regular part of the the process, I I really, really mean that. Um, Because, you know, mathematicians aren't the people who just find the stuff really easy and know exactly what they're doing. They're the people who just, you know, aren't put off when they hit dead end after dead end after dead end, and and struggle, and struggle, and struggle. So, you during my PhD, there was one point where I had this problem that I, I knew that there was something wrong in the way that, um, in, in the answer that I was getting. There was something that wasn't quite working. And I literally spent six months trying to find out what the problem was. I'm not exaggerating there, no, six <laughs> months, every day, go home, you know, work all day, go home at night having not having failed next day next day next day for months and months and months and you know deciding right i'm getting rid of everything that i've done up until now and i'm starting completely again from scratch totally from scratch and going all the way through it and and finding the same answer again and again and again i mean more than several times and then eventually eventually I remember the moment so clearly when I sold you, I was so frustrated and I just decided to get up from my desk and go for a little, um, go for a little walk. I think it was like going to go and go to the loo or something. And I was just literally, I left the door of the office and as I was pushing the door, I realised what I'd done wrong for all of this time. It all kind of came together and I was like, oh my God, I've been so stupid. But then, so that is a really good day, right? When you make a big step forward, but it was only possible... It was only possible because I knew the problem by then, by like the back of my hand. So you know, a good day doesn't necessarily mean making progress. It just means getting to be more familiar with the, with the problem.
0: Flipping, it, it reminds me of that Hannah. I was lucky enough to interview Simon Singh a couple of episodes ago, and I I, oh, assume, yeah. you, I assume you've seen the the, the famous Fermat's Last Theorem doc, BBC documentary. Of course, about
1: forty five. <laughs> okay. Yeah,
0: and that that opening scene where he shows Andrew Wiles talking about the moments where he he had that that breakthrough and you can see him his his eyes are welling up and he he can't get his words out and it like i I always show that to kids because i don't think students sometimes realize that that kind of maths can have that power right Can can evoke that emotion and that that sense of achievement and i just think hearing your story there and, and and that particular scene from that documentary like maths is a powerful thing right and especially if you dedicate oh, really? your life to it and stuff it's yeah it can stir up all those feelings just the same as you get in sport
1: or anything else does that make sense yeah totally totally i mean andrew was just the man is a great. i mean he spent seven years on that problem <laughs> And and I think at that moment, you know, he knows that he can live a thousand lifetimes and he'll never have that moment again. Uh, that's kind of he's, he's, he's lived through this experience, which is so remarkable, so remarkable. And he knows that that experience can never, ever be repeated. That sort of that glory of realizing that you've done it. It's just so incredible. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think that. I I really agree with your analogy about sport there, because I think that what we're talking about here is the very limits of human achievement. You know, I think it's it's just where people so wholeheartedly commit everything that they have to something to to sort of an, an endeavor that is that they have to carry on their own shoulders. It doesn't really matter what that endeavor is when they succeed or when they fail. It's every every fiber of their being feels Feels that success or that failure. So yeah, I really think maths can be incredibly powerful. (laughs) Fantastic. And
0: was that 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 moment you spoke about there, the the struggle after six months? Was that your proudest mathematical achievement, or do do you have another? (laughs) Do you have another one?
1: To be honest, actually, if (laughs) when I actually realised what my mistake had been, (laughs) (laughs) it's probably one of my (laughs) least proud (laughs) moments in a way (laughs) um, that I made that mistake in first place. Uh, No, I think actually, I think for me. It, it probably goes back to um, the, the dissertation I did for my master's, um, which was, you know, this little problem, really little problem dynamics. Um, but I think it was my proudest moment because uh, in terms of, I mean, it's not certainly not the, the sort of biggest thing that I've achieved, but um, it, was, it was the first time that I really created something original by myself. You know, the first time that I, that I'd, basically made you know done some new maths and brand new maths and that was i think really um and actually it didn't you know it didn't even take that long really it was you know a master's just months to do uh rather than you know these sort of incredible achievements that other people do that take years but i think i was really really just very very proud of that, that that um that yeah the first time that you create something new is a really important moment i think fantastic
0: now i'm i'm hoping here honey, you can help me out because one thing i always say to my kids is they, they never want to put like the working out down they just want to bang straight for the answer and they they hate mm-hmm. any kind of question that says explain this or discuss or describe they've no interest in that whatsoever um, but, and but i always say to them no look it's just as important to be able to communicate things mathematically as it is to get the answer now they, they, they don't listen to a word i'm saying there but i'm hoping that we, you, you've got a bit of an authority about you um, is, is that true am i, am I talking rubbish there is is communication a a kind of key part of of, of being a mathematician and and doing successful maths you
1: are 100 percent correct you're 100 um i think you know it's absolutely integral because the thing is is that um you know for starters i i I think that a a correct answer doesn't mean anything if no one else can understand it Mm. you know it's it really is about um you know your work has to has to stand on its own two feet really it has to be the case that that whatever you've worked out can be handed to anyone and they understand exactly what's going through your 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 mind i mean really i think mathematics is a language that communicates what's in someone's head to another person really ultimately and unless you're communicating that thought that sort of you know that that mathematical idea correctly then you're not you're not really it's, it's an integral part of the process I was in America recently and I went to go and visit Brown University and they were gossiping, the mathematicians were gossiping with me over dinner, and this was the story they told me. So it was quite a famous case, quite recently, where a mathematician published their work online claiming to have solved this incredibly famous theorem, right? And the the proof that they'd come up with was incredibly long, unbelievably detailed, really, really, really dense mathematics, Right. And all of the experts in the world. I mean, it's really everyone wants this theory to be solved. Everyone's sort of, you know, willing this person on. But it has to be checked, and it has to be, it has to, uh, you know, the ideas have to hold true. They, they have to be, have to be absolutely sure that the proof is really doing what. what what the the author claims that it's doing so um you know the mathematicians in the community the, the sort of real experts in the field of which there's only really a handful of people sat down and tried to take this proof to pieces and try and really get to the heart of whether it was it was uh, you know really it, really true and as they dismantled it they realized that actually it just didn't really it, it wasn't really communicating itself very clearly the ideas were sort of sketched out but there was there was a lot of there was these big gaps in in the um in in the proof where the author had just said oh this bit's trivial and this fits kind of easy you know whatever hadn't hadn't really bothered to communicate themselves properly and then this big sort of argument broke out where they asked the author to the mathematician who'd written this this proof really explain themselves properly and he was very dismissive he was like well no I can't you know it's it's, it's you, you clearly don't understand it well enough if you're if you're not if you're not capable of filling in those gaps you clearly don't understand it well enough the proof is right and that's the end of it. And the math the mathematical community just doesn't accept this as an answer. This is just not how things happen That communicating your ideas is just as integral to, to complete the proof as uh, as the work itself. So you know, essentially, this proof has not been accepted by the mathematical community as true. And if someone else can pick it up and understand that the, follow the thread of that mathematical idea, then it's then it's worthless
0: jeez i love it right that's exactly what i'm going to use there hannah that is perfect that. <laughs> i want to now ask you a question from joe morgan or as i like to call a hannah fry super fan <laughs> joe morgan um, and she she said i, I, I only al- i only allowed her to ask one question otherwise she'd have taken over this entire you. and she said and i think it's a really really important one this have you encountered any barriers in your career from being a woman
1: so, I thought about this question quite long when when you sent through the list of questions. I was thinking about this quite a lot. So I think in terms of direct barriers, not really. I mean, there's definitely been the occasional professor who <laughs> who much prefers working with male mathematicians than female mathematicians and it's quite dismissive of you that definitely happens um but i mean in terms of barriers to my career i don't really think that they've they've really got in the way i think what happens more often is it's a much lower level uh lower level barrier right i think it's more like death by a thousand cups So I think that when you are a female mathematician, especially a young female mathematician, I think that everybody assumes that you don't know what you're talking about. I think that everybody assumes that you're not really in the right place. And when I say everybody, I don't mean... I don't mean people are being outrageously sexist or people are being deliberately, you know, patronising. It's just, it's just this general thing that you, the people's image of a mathematician, unfortunately, often doesn't include young female, you know, young female PhD students or young female, um, you know, doctors, um, or you know, or or, or master students even. Um, and so, you know, w- what happens is quite often when you walk into a, a room with people where you don't know them. Um, this is especially, you know, when I was a little bit younger and hadn't done uh, hadn't done sort of as much outreach work. You you start, you know, maybe having a conversation with people about a mathematical idea, and they just assume that you you're you're, you're stupid. Really, they just assume that you don't really know what you're talking about. And I think that this is something that doesn't really happen to, the, to my male colleagues or it hasn't really happened to my male colleagues and I think that I thought that especially when um, a couple of years ago I ended up interviewing lots of different PhD students across um, across London universities lots of different maths PhD students and I really noticed something when um, when they were talking about their work and the thing about doing a PhD, right, PhDs are incredibly hard, right, unbelievably difficult. They're supposed to be difficult. It's supposed to be incredibly challenging. But the way that the male and the female students talked about how difficult it was, there was a really striking difference between them. So the, the female students, well, let me start with the male, actually. The male students, when they would talk about their work, they'd say, maths is difficult. I'm finding it difficult. It's supposed to be difficult. That's, that's mm. the story. But when you spoke to the female students, they would say, I can't do it. It's me that's the problem. Right? It's not the maths that's difficult. It's my abilities that are limiting me. And I think that that is something that you see over and over and over again whenever you look at how um, you know, women in STEM subjects Bind their experience. This sort of constant noise that comes from around the outside of them, saying, "Oh, it's a real surprise that you're a mathematician. It's a real surprise that you know what you're talking about. I didn't expect you to be, you know, as good at maths as you are." I think that that ends up sort of penetrating through, so that when stuff happens that's that's difficult, you can't help but think that that's on your, on, you know, on your shoulders. That you're the one that's the problem, rather than the subject itself. And I think that, you know, thankfully for me, I'm just, um, you know, have the sort of character where I don't really listen to what other people say. And I quite like proving people wrong. But I think that there are so many females who, who leave either during their PhDs or after their PhDs because they just can't really square those those two different ideas you know that because almost always there there's no difference in ability between the female mathematicians and the male mathematicians it's just how society sort of expects them to be and how they end up putting that burden on themselves geez that, that's fascinating
0: that and it, it reminds me um a, a study I, sh- I, I saw a couple of years back and I, i'm going to get this completely wrong as well it'll all be kicking off people will be tweeting in left right and center about this but it was i think it was done by um the ukmt the united kingdom mathematics trust of one of their um the, the junior math challenge papers and they found that and i could not believe this hannah they found that if they asked candidates to put their name at the top of the paper before they they completed the challenge um and then they compared that to if they asked candidates to do the challenge first and then write their name at the end of it on, on their answer sheet The <laughs> females performed significantly worse if they were to put their name first before they did the challenge whereas with the boys it made no difference whatsoever and I could mm. not believe this but it, it makes sense right and, and you're talking here about like really good mathematicians like PhD students yeah and
1: really it, good mathematicians it's, it's, yeah. it's frightening it's, well, what, what can we do about this Hannah like do you see this as well, kind well of, I think can, it's i do think it's changing i do think it's changing um i think that i think that um I think people are starting to acknowledge that this is this is a problem and I think that people are starting to put in systems in place to really change the view of what a mathematician is. And I think that you know podcasts like like yours I think stuff that Joe Morgan does I think you know all of the stuff that's on YouTube online I mean there's I, I think really what's happened is the internet has democratized mathematics mm. right? It it's meant that no one now has a monopoly on saying I am the mathematician and I speak for mathematicians because anybody in the world who really loves mathematics and sees it as this beautiful, amazing, creative playground can put their content online for anyone in the world to see it. And I think that slowly and surely that's changing our ideas of what a mathematician is away from this notion of kind of, you know, crusty old white professors (laughs) Mm -hmm. who don't want to speak to anyone to just everyone right different you know backgrounds different ethnicities different genders i just think i think our view of what a mathematician is is changing i think that slowly that's filtering through and i think it's making a difference
0: fantastic um, last couple of questions before we dive on to some of your current work and um, do you have a favorite kind of piece of mathematics so the reason i ask this is you like people have favorite songs favorite pieces of art favorite poems and stuff do you have like a, a favorite piece of matter every now and again you look at and think yeah that that that's good that i like that <laughs>
1: um I. Right. In terms of going back and looking at it, well, um, I don't know if I have a bit that I go back and look at. But there is, you know, the, right, fluid dynamics, yeah, it's the <laughs> most delicious thing, I can't tell you. Can't tell you how delicious it is. It's so clever. You try and sort of break it, right? You try and trick it. You try and get ahead of it, and you can't. It's always there before you. It's like it's like it totally knows. And there's something called um, there's something called the triple deck, right? Which is this this very very niche part of fluid dynamics, which is where you transition from from one state to another. Um, and it's just the most beautiful thing. I can't. I mean, it's the most. It, it, there's a real beauty sometimes. I think in the way that things work rather than in the way that things look. Mm. And I think that that, that for me, oh, it's bloody lovely.
0: <laughs> <laughs> You've sold me. I'll be looking that up straight away, Hannah. Nice.
1: Um, and How about a favourite mathematician? Do you have one of those? Yeah. So I mean, I'm probably going to go for for um, Tim Gowers actually because. I just um, so, but I'm going for I'm going for him, not necessarily because of his mathematical work, which is a bit of a cheat, isn't it, really? (laughs) But I'm going for him. Oh no, you know what? Actually, can I have two? Go on then, go on. (laughs) Two, I want two. I'm going for Tim Gowers because I just think that he, I just really like the way that he thinks just think that he um he does a lot of blogs actually one of the um one of the blogs i have for my for my top three later um is one of his a a blog post from him but he's just he's a really clear thinker and every now and then he sort of gets involved in other in stuff outside of mathematics um you know in things about academic journals or or things about math education or or even do you you remember the av vote that we had a little while ago yes yeah yeah Um, he kind of He dips his toe in that sort of stuff occasionally. And just his thought process is so clear and just so, I find him just very, very impressive. Um, I mean, he's a fields medalist, so obviously he's an actual genius. genius. (laughs) (laughs) But um, but the other one, I think for me, is Stephen Strogatz. Uh, I I don't don't know know him, no, I don't know. Okay, so he is um, just amazing. (laughs) Uh, His mathematical work, mathematical work is absolutely incredible absolutely incredible i mean he's a proper proper good mathematician and he's a mathematician who's had um who's done work in lots of different fields right so um you know he's He's done loads of incredibly important paper on networks. Um, He's done loads of stuff on sort of um, differential calculus. Uh, He's just a very very impressive mathematician. But he's also a really brilliant science communicator. So he used to have this article, this um, this column in the New York Times. And just talking about, you know, finding mathematics in every day. And there's a really beautiful article that I particularly remember where he was talking about how the hair on a baby's head spirals, you know, like that sort of little curl that you get at the back of the baby's head. Um, And he was talking about he used that sort of a starting point to talk about singularities. It's just the most beautiful ideas. He's a very, very clever man. Right, like I'm,
0: looking, I'm looking him up as well. This is my weekend sorted here Hannah This is perfect. This. And the last question before we dive into some of your current work is: um Do you still do maths for fun, or or is it? Do you just see maths as work these days?
1: No, I still do maths for fun. I still, you know, if I go on holiday, I'll still bring like a puzzle book with me um, and play around. But to be honest, I don't think i actually don't get to do that much math these days because i'm mainly you know running around doing loads of other projects and you know have phd students to supervise us and master students to teach and you know boring meetings to go to and boring paperwork to fill in and so on so the amount of actual math i get to do now is quite limited so whenever i do it it's always absolutely joyful it's always just a complete pleasure (laughs) well i say a complete pleasure i mean the most frustrating thing humanly imaginable (laughs) But every now and then, that couple of moments of like real kind of success are worth it.
0: Super, fantastic. And um, before we dive into your, your your most recent book, Hello World, I just want to want to talk about a couple of the other things that I've absolutely loved that you, you've done over the last few years. Um, and I wonder for for each of these, Hannah, we'll just do a couple of them. Can you just kind of pick out maybe either your favourite story from it, or something that mm-hmm. that you found out <laughs> that you didn't know before, or, or however you want to interpret it? And the first one is I absolutely love this. Is uh, your book The Mathematics of Love? And I actually um, <laughs> I read this when I was single myself, and I I, I put this. I mean, Did you really. And I'm I'm happily married now, so I'm thinking I you know, I should have had you at the wedding to be honest with you. because um, this this I, I definitely wow. developed a systematic approach to, to my online dating habits. So um I absolutely love this book. And I just wondered um yeah, well just tell us something about it for for people who perhaps haven't come across this one.
1: Yeah yeah. So the idea if this was so, if I'm honest, this is kind of like a um I was just being a bit silly one day and decided to, like, just do a, a silly little talk, um, pretending, you know, that, that sort of trying to squish those two things together, maths and love. And it ended up being this quite, you know, this little private joke that got ridiculously out of my hand. So I ended up doing a talk that was a, a TEDx talk that was videoed. And it got bumped up to being a sort of proper TED talk, It got like five million views or something. So the book came off the back of that. Um, but the idea behind this, that you know, the real sort of the, the honest idea behind it is that I just wanted to I, it, I find it so frustrating when people can't see the value in mathematics or can't see how relevant it is to their everyday lives. And I just wanted to prove that you can take any subject in the entire world and mathematics will give you a way to look at it with fresh eyes and to and, and give you new insights into that subject. So I deliberately tried to pick the hardest subject of all to describe, namely um love. But there's just um do you want me to give you do you want me to give you a little example yeah, of go for how it. you can go for it. Love? Okay, so probably one of my favorites is um is some work that was done by uh, a collaboration between the psychologist John Gottman and a mathematician called James Murray. Um and this is some work where they looked at couples who were in long term relationships and they worked out a way to mathematically model how an argument evolves over time. It's absolutely amazing. Essentially, what they did is they, they they videotaped loads and loads of different couples having an argument, and then later they would watch back the videotape and they would score everything that happened in that argument. Right. So every time that someone you know was a bit sort of was nice to their partner, they would get a positive score. Um, you know, if they sort of injected some humour, they'd get a positive score. If they rolled their eyes, they get a negative score. So within all of this, within these beautiful equations that describe the sort of ebb and flow of an argument and how sometimes you can get trapped in these negativity spirals kind of going downwards into into nothing, they also managed to be able to predict which particular couples, based on one argument, would go on to get divorced and they could make this prediction percent accuracy right it's absolutely astonishing the math is like it really properly works it really genuinely captures what's going on but i think what's really amazing is when when you look inside the equations there's something in there that that's written in the data written in the real couples and how they're interacting with each other there's something called the negativity threshold right now this is essentially it the trigger point so it's it's how annoying one person's got got to be before before they provoke this extreme response in their partner right how <laughs> how, how far you can go before you properly piss someone off right? <laughs> <laughs> now i think if you were just guessing right you i would guess i would certainly guess that the the couples who've got the best chance at long-term success are going to be those couples where that threshold is really high yes. right where it takes a re- lot before you annoy someone properly right they're really sort of letting stuff go and they're like you know you're you're giving each other room to be yourself Mm. but actually so the math says the opposite the math says that the the couples who've got the best chance of long-term success are the couples where that negativity threshold is really low so essentially what this is, is it's couples where if something annoys them they don't just let it go. They don't just, you know, whatever, turn, turn the other cheek. They speak up about it immediately. And they're like, no, you know what? That's not okay. Like, I'm not happy with you doing that. But, you know, you've set, you overstepped the line here. So, so this ends up being the couples where when there's a problem, they're sort of continually repairing and resolving these tiny little issues rather than bottling everything up. And then, you know, sort of one day just coming home and completely exploding with rage. <laughs> And I think that's really I think that's really interesting. I mean, obviously, the way that you sort of bring stuff up is important as well. You can't just start shouting. You've got to, you know, use the right language and and approach things in the right way. But I do think it's really amazing that, um, you know, well, ultimately, there's this mathematical proof that you should never let the sun go down on your anger. And I just think that's a really nice idea that this is all written in the equations
0: that is that is lovely about Hannah yeah it's, it's the kind of book that helps people get together and stay together I, li- I like it so yeah f- absolutely yeah. superb um, the, the other thing I just wanted to, to touch on as well is um I think this is my favorite thing you've done you know and certainly in terms of TV and that was the the joy of winning I thought that's absolutely flipping brilliant and I, I'm it's al-
1: my favorite he's amazing
0: favorite. and i'm a little bit biased and i try to keep this quiet as much as possible <laughs> on the podcast but i'm um i'm a i'm a, I'm an economist by by trade i did economics ah. yeah i know i know and it never goes down well it never goes down well but um and i loved I, I love game theory i love behavioral economics i love all that side of things and it was it was my absolutely perfect tv show so again just to tell, tell us one little thing about the joy of winning for, for anybody
1: who hasn't checked that one out So, yeah, this is a program about game theory. I absolutely love this program. Just, yeah, the director on this is so clever. She totally gets math. She totally gets it. She understands that you've got to convey it in this really playful, relevant way. Um, But so, for example, one of the things that we did on this program was um, using game theory to make your children do what you want them to do. (laughs) Um, Sort of negotiation, really. Um, Now, essentially, the, the example that we had in the program was if you are, if you're, you're on holiday um, you're driving, you know, off, off to holiday and your kids are being a right pain in the bum and in the backseat and continually arguing. Um, so what you could do in that situation is you could make a threat. Right. You could say, if you don't shut up now. I'm going to turn the car around. But the thing is, is that game theory, which is, you know, ultimately this mathematical idea says you can't do that because it's not a credible threat because they know that you don't really mean it. So there's mm-hmm. no point. You've undermined yourself just by saying that. They know that you're not going to cancel the holiday if they don't shut up. So it doesn't mean anything. So the alternatives then are that you could do a threat which they definitely believe. So you could say, if you don't shut up now, we're going to spend the first day of the holiday going to visit an art gallery. (laughs) And if they know, as long as they know that you love going to art galleries and they really hate going to art galleries... So that then if they continue their argument, they're essentially giving you giving you the right to just ruin their birthday yes. of the holiday, um, then it's a credible threat. So that's kind of, that's a good thing. But the best stuff of all is that if you make it, so that this is, the, you know, the game theory idea is that if you make it so that they then police their own, um, police themselves, right? So if you instead say, if you two don't shut up, the next one of you who speaks uh, is going to go to bed early while the other one is allowed to stay up as long as they like right nice. um and and then suddenly you know that not only is that threat credible because you know it's something that you could you, they could imagine you doing but it's definitely going to be carried out because the other one never going to let the let <laughs> you get away with it, you know, right um and so all of a sudden then no one genuinely wants to be the next one to speak um, and so that's sort of how you uh, use maths to manipulate your own children. <laughs>
0: that is, I mean, we're building a nice narrative here. We're getting people together with mathematics <laughs> of love, keeping them together, and then when babies come along, we're helping them parent as well. Hannah, this is good. This math, maths <laughs> changing lives. Um, at the time of recording, um, your your t- new TV series is on, and this is this is flipping sweeping the world as well. I saw a tweet from um, is it Carol Vorderman. Mm. She's loving this as well. She got she got in touch on Twitter. I saw, um, and this is magic <laughs> numbers.
1: So, um, t- tell us a little bit about magic numbers, Hannah. Yeah, so the idea I mean, I was so excited to get this this commission. It's just, it's so rare, it's so rare that people will take the chance and put proper maths on TV. I mean, it just, it almost never happens. The last time. 12, where Marcus Marx just sort of is the code. I think that's the last, yes. the last time we had proper maths on TV, you know, real three part. So the idea behind this, the premise behind the show is that we're exploring whether math is invented or discovered. And um, it's a question that comes up really often People often ask me, um, you know, wh- what I think of it. And so it's just kind of going through the history of maths really and um, trying to find evidence, uh, you know, in one direction or the other, um, saying whether it's invented or, or whether it's discovered.
0: Super fantastic okay Hannah well let, let's turn now then towards uh, to, to your current work Hello World which I, I've actually read it twice now and I'm not just saying that and I, I, I sometimes you find it hard yeah I've done it done it twice done it twice full preparation for this and I, I, I want to dive into this cause <laughs> it's it's a wonderful book and I know it will be dead awkward if I, I read it and I didn't like it, and i probably still say it was good but I promise you I promise <laughs> you I really really enjoy this one and um, I know the, this is a bad question to open up but in a, in a sentence if at all possible what what's the book about Hannah?
1: Okay so I mean this is like this is really 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 applied maths right <laughs> but, but but in a way I mean so essentially it's about how how mathematical algorithms are shaping our future really ultimately so it's about that and I think that actually Although I mean, I've now just since publishing this book, I think I've discovered that just the word algorithm makes about eighty-five percent of the people in the country want to gouge out their own eyes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not a word that instills much joy and like thrill. But I, but I promise you, I promise you that actually this book is totally relevant to every single one of us. It, it's totally anchored in reality because I think that actually algorithms you know computer algorithms artificial intelligence um you know just things like um social media um you know i mean algorithms now they're absolutely everywhere uh, you know they're, they're they're deciding what we read they're deciding what we watch they're in some cases deciding who we date um you know they're in our courtrooms they're in our cars they're in our hospitals they're in our schools they're i mean they're just absolutely everywhere right um and i think that In that sense, there is no other mathematics that has this kind of power and control over how we live our lives as humans. You know, people say that math feels like it's very arm's length a lot of the time. But what's the point in this? How is this ever going to be used? Well, this really, really, really is absolutely how math is not just not just out there, but changing the whole whole way that we live our, live our lives and change the whole structure of our societies so that's really what the book is about and it's about whether we want that and, and about what you know <laughs> the upsides and the downsides of handing over control to, to logic and mathematics
0: nice um, it's, it's funny you mention algorithms I am um, having read the book I got a message from a student I used to teach a, a sixth form student and I don't know if you're familiar with the, um, the A level maths module it's gone now with, with the new A level but um, decision one it, dec- yeah yeah yeah. And, um, I, I taught decision maths for many years and um, that's full of algorithms but it's full of terrible yeah. alg- algorithms so really this, awful la- yeah, this lad t- texted me and he said uh, uh, I, I now see the point of algorithms these are slightly more useful than the bubble sort because i don't know if you've got the I bubble know. sort is the world's worst oh one because god. it's it's, it's sorting a list vote. yeah it's sorting a list of five numbers in order it takes about three hours to do it and the kids are just like well i can put them in i can just see i can put them in order and it's trying to convey that no but this is dead important and programming computers and so on so i think i think you're breathing new life into the word algorithm it's got a definite I image know. problem that I
1: word know. so well no. that's it we're not talking about sorting lists of numbers here we're not talking <laughs> about oh god you know five Finding the shortest path between yes. a net. Uh, yeah, it, what we're talking about, we're talking about you know trying to track down serial killers. Algorithms that are used by the police to work out where serial killers are based. Right, algorithms that are um, that can can predict whether or not someone is going to go on to commit a crime in future, and are used in courtrooms to do that. You've got you've got algorithms that can cure, uh, that can, can diagnose cancer. Algorithms that are used, you know. And just the most thing to, to drive cars, right? This is not just sorting numbers. It's not just something that feels totally pointless. This is really real, real maths being used in real, like to real proper good use. Super and fun. bad use.
0: <laughs> I know,
1: absolutely. Sometimes bad use.
0: <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. Pick pick out if if it's all right, Hannah. What you think uh, is an example of one of the most mathematically cleverest uses of an algorithm that you've come across in your research?
1: Yeah, so I think for me, actually, one of my favourites is, is exactly that is is, is uh, the example of using using maths to work out um, to work out where serial killers are from. So it's sort of tracking down serial killers, and the idea behind this stuff is it's it's very very simple. If you um, if you imagine that you have a serial killer, or you know someone who has committed a lot of muggings, or you know lots of attacks, and you look at a map. And you you can imagine the dots on the map of where they've committed all of their crimes. You could sort of guess just by looking at that map, that especially if there's a lot of them. You could imagine sort of placing a cross on that map yeah. as to where you think the serial killer is likely to to come from, where they're likely to live. But you know, just guessing isn't particularly useful. So what this algorithm does is it, it's it's a it's a sort of systematic way to filter through all of that information. And work out where is the most mathematically likely place to find your serial killer. And this is something that's actually been used in real cases for um, actually quite a a reasonable amount of time. There was one particular um, one particular case, a really appalling case uh, where um, there were a series of, of rapes that happened around Leeds and Bradford. Um, and there was, you know, these the, the locations of these, these really horrible attacks. You know, looking at the map, it was really difficult to, to track things down. But this bit of math, this mathematical algorithm was used and ended up pinpointing the home location of the, uh, of the, of the lead suspect, um, a guy called Clyde Bartwell. Um, and then once they knew where he was from, they managed to find that he'd left a partial fingerprint <clears throat> at the site of one of his attacks. And they'd managed to, you know, match it to his record, but only because they could narrow down where where he was from and they, they kind of had access to the local information there. Um, just very, very impressive, a very impressive
0: use of mathematics. Jeez, it's slightly more impressive than putting five numbers in order. I, I like that one. Just, a, I? Little bit, just <laughs> a little bit, just a little bit. How about an example of a scary use of an algorithm?
1: So I think the way the scary uses of algorithms come in is when people are using them without really understanding the limitations of applying mathematics in the real world, right? Because the thing is, is that ultimately, you know, sometimes I think math does a really, really good job of getting you a long way there. But actually, it's there's still going to be errors, right? If you're working with statistics and you're working with probability, you know you have to be comfortable with the fact that things are not always going to be 100%, or often won't be 100%. And it's about understanding what that really means, you know, when when um when something does make errors. So for example, there's a there's a an algorithm that uh, is called the Chicago Strategic Subject List, um which I think has been. Really badly used because people don't understand this idea of, of algorithms making mistakes. So essentially, what happened is um, in Chicago they've got an incredibly horrendous problem with gun crime, um, and so what they wanted to do is they wanted to see if they could predict who would be involved in gun crime in future. Now the maths behind this is very simple. It's it's um, it's, it's thinking of people as being connected in a network, and it's noticing the fact that actually quite often. Um, it's within the same groups of people that gun crime happens. So you know, if you're, a, if you're a victim one day, you'll be a perpetrator the next day. So what it does is it analyzes groups of people and it comes up with a list of names of people who the algorithm thinks are likely to be involved in gun crime in the near future. And it doesn't distinguish between perpetrator or victim. It just says this person is going to be likely mm. to be involved. So the idea behind this algorithm, you know, is pretty good, right? It's that, you know, if your name comes up on this list, a social worker will visit your house and they'll have some kind of intervention plan. And they try and get you out of this life of crime or, or you know, this this sort of this dangerous life that you're living in where, you know, you're kind of at high risk of being involved in, in gun crime. Um, and that's all sounds very good. Right. That's all sounds fine problem was this list was then put in the hands of um of the police who i think didn't really understand the sort of limitations of it and you know they've also got their own issues their own things that they're trying to their own incentives their own things that they're trying to deal with so essentially what ended up happening rather than this list being used for good is that uh, whenever there was a gun crime whenever someone was murdered and it was unsolved the police will use this list as kind of like a list of suspects as though the algorithm had predicted who were the perpetrators of the crime which is not what it was designed to do and so would get this list these people whose names just appeared on this mathematical list and start at the top and work their way down and you know arresting people on the list (laughs) which is just i think a really terrifying use of like misunderstanding the limitations of the mathematical models
0: Flipping heck, yeah! That that is that is scary. Uh, what well, one? I'll tell you my favourite chapter in the book, and it's it's hard to pick a favourite. But I, I I flipping love the the driverless car bit. I'm a bit obsessed with oh, this. Do you? Yeah, I'm a bit obsessed with this at the moment, <laughs> and I hope you can help me out here because I. I can, I can understand how when everyone's got a driverless car, things will probably be all right. But this, mm. tran- this inevitable mm. transition period where some people have got driverless and some people haven't, I can't understand how you could ever program a car to account for kind of human nature. And I'll, I'll tell you a little example. Of this <laughs> I was driving down to Bristol last night and I was, I was thinking about this interview and I was thinking about driverless cars. And I got to a roundabout and I thought to myself, i could not explain in it in an algorithmic way there's no way i could program a computer how i'm actually going to navigate surviving this roundabout because there was people indicating who weren't turning off people indicating who were turning off eyes were looking one way wheels were pointing in another way somebody's doing yeah. you know, somebody's on the phone and i just thought either a driverless car is either going to take too many risks it's going to either assume that humans always are going to do what they're supposed to do so there's going to be tons of crashes there or it's going to assume that humans are, are always going to make mistakes in which case it's never going to get off this flipping roundabout in the first place so mm. I, I i can't understand how algorithms can kind of account for all the weird stupid things that
1: humans do if that makes sense <laughs> but yeah i mean i think you're right but i but i think that the key difference the key difference um Well, okay. So actually, I should probably say first off, I actually totally agree with you. I don't think that we'll have a system where you've got mixture of driverless cars and humans. So I just don't think it's possible. I I kind of agree with everything that you're saying, Um, but I also think that the key difference is that now with these um, machine learning algorithms, you don't have to write an actual set of rules to say. if this happens do this if that happens do that you don't have to do that anymore so the way that you can train your algorithms now it's more like you tr- you're training a dog how to sit so when you train a dog how to sit you don't say to the dog okay right first you have to move this muscle then you have to move that muscle then you have to move this yes. you know you don't do that nor do you sit a dog down and show it loads of you know youtube videos of other dogs sitting <laughs> all you do all you do is you you communicate with the dog what it is that you want it to do you have a very clear objective in your mind and you communicate very clearly with the dog what that is so you know either pushing their bum down and saying the word sit or waiting till they sit and, and um, saying the word sit and then what you do is you repeatedly reward the dog over and over and over and over again every time it gets it right and ignore it whenever it gets it wrong and if you do that enough times the dog understands what it is that you want it to do. But all of the steps in between how to actually sit, you leave it for the dog to work that out itself. Ah. And really, what doing now with computers is a very similar thing. So you say to, you know, if you say to a car, um, OK, this is what a road looks like. Well, how, what does a road look like? You know, it, you can't really describe it because of colour, because... Yes different roads are going to be different colours, you can't describe it because of texture, you can't describe it because it's straight lines, or because they curve, you know, bend around. What is a road, right? It's like That's a really hard thing to answer, what is a road? Um, what is road and what isn't road? But what you can do is you can just drive around on a road and tell the car you're driving on a road and let it work out for itself what a road is. You can kind of do that same thing of being very clear about what your objective is, i.e. driving on the road, and then let the car fill in the gaps in the middle. Ah.
0: It's very
1: clever. It's a very, very clever little um, little mathematical trick that you can do.
0: I like it. Superb. Um, last couple of questions, Hannah, um, and then we're going to just reflect and then have have your big three. Um, I wonder if you, you do anything, you, you act differently yourself as a result of your research into the book. I'm, I'm thinking particularly of kind of online activities here because that's flipping scary as well, isn't it? All the data that's being collected and stuff. Do you, do you, yeah, and, and, and I'm yeah. just, I'm ticking every, I'm accepting terms and conditions left, right and centre without reading anything at all. <laughs> do, exhausted you, do, you, do you do anything differently?
1: Um, I have ad blockers on and I, um, I'm very careful about what software I download um, and yeah, I'm like really careful about my privacy settings, that kind of thing. Yeah, a little bit differently, um, but I mean, ultimately, it's very difficult to to opt out of a lot of this mm-hmm. stuff, isn't it? I mean, we're kind of the genie's a bit out of the bottle, really, in a lot of ways. We've we've sort of agreed to, you know, living in this kind of um, <laughs> we've swapped our privacy in, in exchange for these, the, you know, access to this incredible technology that's for free. And there's only so much that we really can do unless we you know, properly want to bend over backwards and try and live in the shadows. So, you know, it's a mixture, really. I try and protect myself where I can, but I'm also very mindful of the fact that there's only so much that you can protect yourself.
0: Got it. Got it. And last question on the book, Hannah. Like, this book is sweeping the world at the moment. I, I was in the gym a couple of Sundays ago. This and was, This was after um, we'd sorted out the date for you to come on the show. And I'm just doing my rowing and I'm looking up at the telly and you're on Flipping Sunday Brunch like uh, you know, he was, uh, and, and like my wife who was rowing next and he said there's no way no way she's coming on your podcast now absolutely absolutely, absolutely no chance so i wonder like, and there's all these like amazing people mathematicians from all different worlds are tweeting saying how much they're loving the book it's in all the newspapers mm-hmm. and stuff I, firstly you must be blown away by it and secondly what what's been the kind of standout moment for you with ever uh, kind of after the books come out that you thought yeah i'm, I'm really proud of that that's amazing that
1: yeah. I mean I am just I'm just massively, massively proud of this book. I think it's you know, it's it's something that it really is about mathematics, but the mathematics is kind of it's in there by itself if you if you see what I mean. Yes. It's really like it's really um it's trying to just appeal to absolutely everybody and really sort of um, address this thing of what how mathematics is shaping absolutely everybody's lives, but in a way that um, you know that we're just not really aware of, and I don't even think mathematicians are particularly aware of. Um, and I think that um, yeah, I'm just enormously, enormously proud of it. I think um, you know, I tried really hard, Craig. I tried really, really hard. <laughs> <laughs> but I think I think this sort of standout thing for me is there's this um, there's a very big non-fiction award called um it's called the bailey gifford it used to be called the samuel johnson award and it's for uh, any book about anything any non-fiction book about anything in the english language right Whoa. so you know there's loads of american authors on the list you know all of this kind of thing and it's all science books almost never get nominated yes. right never and um and yet my book is on the shortlist so we find out in in november whether or not um it won but it's just i mean just honestly to be shortlisted for that prize is just it's a very very big deal
0: (laughs) well congratulations hannah it is absolutely wonderful book okay hannah so one uh, last quick reflection and then it's time for your big three um what do you wish you'd known when you first started out in your career that you
1: know now so i think i'm willing to take a lot more risks now that I'm a bit older I think early on I was very very cautious about everything and I think that actually I think part of that stems from being afraid of failing mm. um you know I went to uh, the same university for my master's for my PhD and then I went back there again for my for my postdoc I really you know didn't sort of branch out and take take any kind of risk I was very sort of a home bird and very kept everything very safe and I just wish that um you know I had been more willing to just throw myself into stuff and try things because i think ultimately that's how you learn so yeah being less afraid of failure and more willing to embrace risky things i think that's uh, that's what i would
0: say i like it very positive message i like that okay time for your big three hannah um what three other websites blog posts or whatever you like would you recommend our listeners check out and i'll put links to all of these in the
1: show notes Okay, so I'm, so I'm sure I'm picking old favourites, to be honest, here. I'm sure I am. But <laughs> Understanding Uncertainty, which is David Spiegelhout's blog. I don't know if you've come across this before. But Yeah, bloody a classic. Brilliant.
0: Absolutely great It's bloody
1: brilliant. I go to it all the time. Whenever I have like a very tricky idea that I need to explain, statistical idea, I always go to that one. It's bloody brilliant. Um, the other one, actually, is there's a blog post by... Timothy Gowers, um, who I was talking about earlier, Uh, it's a blog post called How Should Mathematics Be Taught to Non-Mathematicians? And he wrote this back in 2012. um, And I read it at the time. And it just had this really profound effect on me, actually, about um, (laughs) this is basically the same point in time when I started doing science communication and just reading this blog post I mean I essentially um was designing a course at UCLA about that time and I just put so much of his stuff into this course and it just I think really made a massive difference um difference to me it's got lots and lots of different examples that you can use for for class um you know when teaching in that which um, I think is really amazing and then I think the other one the third example I mean, I'm slightly cheating here, but it is actually true (laughs) in terms of it's where I get lots of my ideas from, which is Reddit. Reddit is absolutely brilliant, at coming up with really brilliantly nerdy, amazing examples of of maths out in the real world. Um, So there's Reddit uh, forward slash math. Uh, Which is very good, a good resource. But also just generally, I mean, I think if you sort of browse, um, you know, the nerdy subreddits, there's often stuff that crops up on there. That's just um, really good material for, uh, you know, looking at it, seeing what's going on and unpicking it. Um, And also just sort of, you know, quite funny, silly illustrations of, of maths out in the real world
0: jeez you know what reddit reddit's never come up hannah like people people always, it? people always talking twitter sometimes facebook pinterest yeah, all that kind like, of stuff yeah. Right? i need to get into reddit no i like that that's that's an, <laughs> e- that's an excellent selection well hannah um i just want to thank you for two things really first off for 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 giving up your time today i mean you are super busy um with with some absolutely fascinating people to talk to and stuff so thank you for for making an hour to to speak to us on the podcast and thank you just as a a general point for for all the work you do in kind of promoting mathematics it's Mm -hmm. i agree with you i think the image of math is is getting better it's it's becoming a bit more mainstream it's it's not so much uh well certainly when i was at school it was a bad thing to be a math nerd and a math geek and it t- took a certain strength of character to to kind of be proud yeah. to say actually i love maths but i see it now in the kids at school that it, it's it's got quite a high status being being good at maths it's it's something to to kind of sing and shout about oh, j- just in the same way so that it cheap. yeah and it's it, i don't think it'll ever have the same kind of status amongst school kids as being good at footy will be or anything like that but <laughs> but I, i'm certainly seeing a change and i think that you're being a really kind of positive and, and key player in that so on behalf oh, of all thank kind you of so much,
1: so Boston. No, I, I
0: genuinely mean that. So, on behalf of all kind of maths teachers, um, thank you for <laughs> thank you for the work you're doing. And Hannah Fry, oh, thank gosh. you,
1: thanks.
0: Th- thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for
1: having me on, Craig. I'm really grateful. Thank you so much.
0: So there you have it. There was my interview with Dr. Hannah Fry. What a wonderful guest Hannah was. As I say, I genuinely was a bit bit nervous or a bit worried before speaking to Hannah. Firstly, because she's pretty famous, to be honest with you. And also, just because... what I don't want to do in these interviews, and it was a similar thing with, with Simon Singh, I don't want it just to be an interview to promote a book or to go through a book and a big kind of sales pitch. I want to dig deep and find out about, about the person and their, their interests, and, and and hopefully I, I managed to do that with, with Hannah, and I, I absolutely, absolutely love speaking to her. Um, Takeaways, where, where to start with this one, because it's a very different episode, this, because as I said Hannah's the first kind of full-time mathematician that, that, that we've had on the show normally it's, it's teachers or, or academics but this is a full-on mathematician so I thought it was fascinating hearing about her day-to-day work and as a result of that the takeaways are going to be, be three different things that we, we've not really spoken about um, um, before on the show so I'm quite, I'm quite looking forward to this. So first off um, I thought it was interesting when we started speaking about algorithms uh, as a way to introduce um, Hannah's latest book Hello World and I mentioned my experience teaching the decision one a level module and in particular um the first couple of algorithms um in that and if you haven't te- taught decision one or, or, or d1 I, I don't know if i'm saying you're gonna say you're missing out because I, I'm, not, I'm not sure you are it's, it's quite a tricky one to teach because and it goes back to a wider point i speak about this in the book and and this has actually come up in a couple of conversations on this podcast maths with a purpose and the problem with, with D1 is it opens up by saying algorithms are really, really important. We need algorithms, we program computers with them and so on and so forth. Chapter one, here's five numbers. Um, I'm gonna teach you an algorithm to put these five numbers in order. And the, this algorithm, there's the bubble sort and the shuttle sort. And they are the flipping most tedious inefficient algorithms you've ever seen in your life and the problem is of course the kids look at these five numbers and say well i'll just put them in order myself it'll take me about three seconds you're like oh no 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 you don't want to do that you want to use this algorithm first pass through this if the second number is bigger than the third number change the order blah 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 blah." kids are knackered by the end of it it's taking them about half an hour to put these five numbers in order and that goes to a wider point that, that what I'm trying to do in my teaching these days is is, is show students the purpose of doing something. And And Dan Mayer talks about this in his Headache and Aspirin series. And if you're interested in, in listening to more about that, if you check out my interview with, with Dan Mayer, but it's the point that kids have to experience what things are like without the thing you're about to teach them before you teach it them. So, what we what Dan Mayer says is what we often do as math teachers, and I'm completely guilty about this, is we offer kids the aspirin before they've experienced a the headache. So we say to students, oh, here's an algorithm to sort out these numbers in order, but they've not experienced what how things can be difficult without that algorithm. So the mistake I used to make with, with D1 is I'd launch straight in with that. But what, what I should have done is say, okay, here's a thousand numbers. Off you go, try and sort these in order. And after about five minutes, when kids are struggling and and is quite inefficient, then I could set up my Excel spreadsheet to do the bubble sort and do it in about 30 seconds or less even. And therefore, students have seen a purpose to this. They've they've seen that brute force doing it on their own is less efficient than the computer based algorithm. So just this idea of, 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 of showing students... What life is like before the thing we're about to teach them, giving them an experience of the headache before we present them with the aspirin. I just think I think is a nice idea. And um, the second thing I wanted to reflect on is, is the perception of maths, and I thought it was absolutely fascinating. Um here in Hannah, firstly talk about the the difference in in girls versus boys um, at PhD level. That's scary, right? Because. I just I just see them as as mathematicians, like very, very, very good mathematicians, kind of what, 21, 22, 23 year old, just top class mathematicians. And yet still there is this difference in perception between between girls and boys and also the perception of maths um, at a wider level. And I I speak about this in, in my book, how. When I was a kid, I used to love maths, but God almighty, I didn't tell my friends any of that. Like, I I told the ones who were a bit geeky like me, but but the ones who I was playing footy with or cricket with, I'd I'd play it down, like, oh yeah, it's alright maths, but it's a bit boring, I'm not not a big fan of my teacher, and so on and so forth. Because I wanted to fit in. And this was true as well when when, when I became a teacher, um, in my first kind of two or three years as a teacher, um, especially with kind of middle set classes, um, uh, year 10s, year 11s, the kind of classes where, again, I'm, I'm generalizing here, but where where the lads are all playing foot, footy and the, the girls are thinking about where they're going to go out over the weekend, blah, blah, blah. Maths is the last thing on their mind. I'd play it down. I'd, I'd say, yeah, it's, it is a bit boring, this topic, but we just got to do, we just got to kind of grind our way through. It. I know, yeah, I know it's a bit rubbish, this, but come on, work with me and let's just battle through it. And I was trying to almost be like them, and it sounds pathetic saying that now, but I thought if I could relate to them and they could relate a bit more to me, then we're all kind of in it together. And you kind of get a bit of short-term success with, with that, but it's not sustainable. Because you, you end up almost apologising for every bit of mathematics that you give these students, and that, that, that just is, isn't a good way to be at all. So now I kind of embrace it. I, I i tell the kids even even those kind of classes where i am the only one kind of shouting and singing the praises of mathematics i say i absolutely love it like i and i do i genuinely love factorizing quadratics and adding fractions i i, I like it and that's kind of the boring bits of math but i I like, I like the simplicity of it I, I like the cleanness the neatness of it and i tell kids this and again i try and show them the purpose of it and i try and boost their confidence and i, I teach them in a way to hopefully make them feel successful but i never hide my love for mathematics and i never apologize for giving them mathematics to to do and i think that's i think i think that's a really really important thing that i've changed over the last kind of probably three to four years um, of of my career and as i say i I banged on a bit a bit about that um, in the book and the um final thing i just wanted to reflect on from from uh, my interview with hannah was was algorithms and technology in general and it got me thinking this like I, i I'm a bit kind of freaked out by, by these algorithms and I, I I I voice my concerns about driverless cars. I think that is that is a disaster waiting to happen whenever you've got driverless cars and and non-driverless cars and on the road. It'll all be it'll all be kicking off. People will be walking out in front of these driverless cars knowing that they're they're, they're gonna stop. People will be figuring out weird ways to hack these cars, make them do stupid things, like surround them with objects, and they'll be spinning around left, right, and centre, and so on and so forth. But We'll probably crack it eventually. And, and Hannah spoke about it, how it's not a case of programming these cars in, in the kind of traditional sense. It's more machine learning. These cars are adapting. So it made me think, well, again, it's, it's a bit of an obvious question, but it's I've, I've certainly been pondering it, especially on this flipping mammoth drive back from Bristol that I was doing, um, doing the other day. Will the algorithms and technology in general ever replace teachers? And I, I guess... The closest we've got to it are these kind of adaptive learning platforms that you see, where when a student gets something wrong, they're then taken off on a different track. It's, auto, it's automatically marked. And then if they get a question wrong, they get a, a certain question or a certain resource or a certain video or so on. And if they get a question right, they're sent on a different track, they're pushed on a little bit further. And the idea here is that, that it adapts to suit the learner's needs. It's this personalized learning. But I don't know about you, but I've I've not seen a decent one of these, and by decent I mean I've not seen something that is anywhere near as good as a teacher sat down with a student, watching them work or marking their book, and then knowing an appropriate amount, a piece of work or support or intervention to give them. Now, this is going to sound like a, a terrible kind of plug, but it's not. It's all completely free. And um, what we try to do at Diagnostic Questions is 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 kind of. A, Try to get around this problem a little bit because the nature of a diagnostic question means that every time a student gets an answer wrong... Because each of the wrong answers has been chosen to identify a a particular misconception, a specific misconception. When a child answers A, for example, we've got a good idea why they've answered A. And if a child answers B, we've got a good idea why they've answered B. And that'll be two different reasons. So they may have two different misconceptions that therefore require two different uh, types of support. Whether it's a resource, a follow-up question, a video, and so on and so forth. So hopefully that's a step in the right direction. But it's not perfect. I mean, the whole nature of multiple choice questions means that kids can guess and, and, and get questions uh, get questions uh, right by fluke or wrong by accident and so on and so forth. And again, it'll never be as good as a teacher. So my view at this current time in, in 2018, and God, if in 10 years time, whenever you know I, I'm sat at home and a robot's taking my class, I'll look absolutely flipping stupid saying this. But I can't imagine algorithms machine learning technology in general ever replacing teachers i think the best we can hope for is that it complements it and we and and that each does what they're good at so we already see this like automated marking things are really good diagnostic questions does it obviously hegarty does it my math does it and so on automated marking that saves teachers hours and hours and hours but it's 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 what then we the teacher does with that time that's saved If those hours that are saved are then used by the teacher to use their expertise, their innate knowledge of the students, their experience that they've built up over years and years and years to say, okay, this student's got this question wrong. I think I know why they've got this wrong and I think I know how to deal with that student. Now, this other student, they've got it wrong for the same reason, but actually I think I'm going to go down a different tact because I know this kid. I know what they respond better to and so on and so forth. So I hope that that. Certainly algorithms and technology will reduce teacher workload. I think that's a massive one. And I hope that they will enable us to to do our jobs better by by complementing what we do, providing us with more information. But I can't see them ever replacing teachers. But as I say, I could be made to look very, very stupid on that one. Anyway, that's about all we have time for. All that remains for me to do is once again thank a couple of people. So first off, podcastthemes.com for the lovely jazzy music that you've heard throughout this episode. A massive thank you to my wonderful, wonderful guest, Dr. Hannah Fry. It was an absolute pleasure to to, to speak to her. I I loved every minute of it. And a big thank you to you, my loyal listeners, for keeping on tuning in, keeping on downloading these episodes in your thousands. Um, Please help me spread the word. Tell people, particularly if you've got non-math, colleagues they're not always about maths these but if you have got maths colleagues who've who've never listened to a podcast and they're like oh god I can't be bothered with that recommend them an episode one that you found useful um, for them and and just suggest as as other teachers have that this is cpd on the move pop it in on your commute to work or on your walk or something like that and hopefully it's it's good ideas it's advice it's inspiration and um, in a in a kind of non-intrusive way it means you can get on with your life whilst also hopefully and um, learning things at the same time And if you have time to leave us a review on iTunes or something like that, that will be absolutely ideal. It just helps more people find out about this show. Anyway, I have got some absolutely wonderful guests lined up over the next few weeks and months and years, hopefully. So um, you stay tuned. uh, You take care of yourselves and bye for now.